All right, you guys can turn to Genesis 1. It's time to get started. Genesis 1. This morning we are going to study a sum total of one verse. Just one verse this morning. Genesis 1.1 is as far as we'll get. Because there's a lot in that one little verse. So in life, there are many questions that you have to answer. Some of them are important. Some of them are not. Ten years and five months ago, my wife had to answer one of the most important questions that she has been asked in life. That was the evening at a gazebo in Highland Park when I got on my knees and proposed. Yes, it was an exciting evening because she said yes, so very good evening for me. Um, very significant question, very, very simple question to answer. It's just yes or no, but, but it had huge ramifications on her life. So let's think for a moment. What if Julie would have said no instead of saying yes? Well, well, I would have been crushed. I would have been devastated. I have no idea where I'd be today, probably in a ditch somewhere this morning. My life would have been would have been ruined. Um, for Julie, what would have happened to her? Well, she would probably still be in Dallas. That's where she grew up. Probably still be an architect. Maybe she would have married someone else. I like to think that she wouldn't have, that she would have never found anyone who measured up to me. Um, but, but I know better. Probably she'd be married. Um, but the worst part of all is if, if she would have said no, then we wouldn't have Luke and Gracie. They would have never come into existence. There are huge ramifications to that very simple yes, no question. There are questions you face in life that you must answer either yes or no that have huge ramifications on the rest of your life. And the most important one, the one at the top of all of the other questions, top of the list, is does God exist? That's the most important question you will answer in life for yourself. Yes or no? Simple question with massive ramifications. Do you believe that God exists? We are confronted with this question in the very beginning of the Bible, the first verse of Genesis. Look with me at Genesis 1.1. Moses says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses gives us his answer to the question unequivocally. So it's very clear. He says, yes, God exists and he has created all things, the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, that means the entire universe, everything that exists was created by this God. So the question is, is Moses correct? Is Genesis 1-1 true? Does God exist? Everyone must answer that question for themselves at some point. And the answer to that question carries huge ramifications. Let's think for a moment. If you answer that question, no, God does not exist, then what are the ramifications of that? Well, let's be frank. First of all, you're wasting your time coming to church this morning. Because church is all about God. And if there is no God, then you shouldn't be here. You should go home and and sleep in and watch football and, and do whatever makes you happy. Because if God doesn't exist, then all life is about is trying to be happy. There is no transcendent creator to define good and evil, right and wrong for you. There is only what makes you happy and what doesn't. There is no right or wrong. There's just what you prefer and what I prefer. And, and what you prefer is no better than what I prefer. So, so just quit worrying about right and wrong and do whatever makes you happy. Seize the day. Enjoy life. Because if God does not exist, then this life is all you get. These few short years is all that you get. And then you die and it's all over if God does not exist. If you answer no. What if you answer Yes. What if you believe that the creator God, Genesis 1-1, does exist? Well, that changes everything. 
Because if God exists, then there is a meaning to your life. There is purpose to your life. There is transcendent right and wrong to guide and and direct your life. And there is a life to come, a life that he tells you about that gives you hope and meaning in this life that shapes everything you do. Your life is not about seeking happiness. It's about knowing and pleasing that one transcendent creator, God, if the answer is yes. Your answer to this question changes everything for you. It's the most important question anyone will ever answer. Now, this morning's study of this question, this is not just intellectual to me. This is very, very personal. Let me share with you my story of wrestling with this question. I grew up in a Christian home, went to church from the earliest days I can remember. I accepted Jesus as a child. And early in my life, I was at church all the time. I was in my youth group. I I participated in youth activities at church all the time. I read a lot of books about God. I thought I had this whole Christianity thing totally figured out until I came here to to Texas A&M. As a college student, I began to interact with some difficult theological questions that, that I couldn't answer easily, like that whole election thing. And how does that not turn the universe into a giant puppet show? I, I didn't know. It was confusing. And what about evolution? There sure seems like there's a lot of evidence for it. And doesn't that undermine my faith? I didn't know what to do with those questions, but I just kind of stuffed them away for most of college. I was enjoying college until my senior year. My senior year, I entered a period that was very dark for me, very depressing, very discouraging. Some things I was hoping for didn't work out for me. I was very lonely, very alone. And it was at that moment that these questions came boiling up and just took hold of me. I couldn't let go of them. They began to stir in my mind and inspire doubt and fear. Man, if I can't figure out this election thing, if it seems absurd to me, and and if evolution seems like maybe it could be correct, then, then is there even a God? Is the Bible correct at all? Can I trust any of it? Or is this all a superstitious myth made up to control people? I didn't know what to do with that. That doubt began to just consume me. It was so hard on me. Well, what's ironic is that right at the time that doubt is really stirring within me and taking hold of me, it was time for the Grace Bible Church Fall College Retreat at Pine Cove. And I had already signed up. I'd already paid my money. My roommates were going. There would be a lot of girls there. So I decided, well, I got nothing better to do, so I'm going to go. So I went to Pine Cove that weekend, and I did not have any fun at all. No fun at all because I was so depressed and so weighed down by these, by these questions that I didn't feel like I could share with anybody because, man, this is a church camp and, and if you tell them that you're wrestling with whether God exists, they're going to kick you out. I just I was afraid they were going to drop me off in Tyler to hitchhike home. And so I just kept these questions to myself and wrestled with them and, and was so weighed down with them that when all my roommates went off to worship during, during the Pine Cove camp, I just stayed on my bunk and pulled out my journal and decided this is it. This is the moment for me. This is the time when I am going to decide once and for all for the rest of my life whether I believe God exists or not. Now, I'm preaching to you this morning, so I'm guessing you can figure out which way I went. (laughs) Yes, I decided yes. After hours and hours of struggle that I'll talk about later, I decided yes, God exists. And what I want to do this morning for you is I want to tell you why I said yes. Why is it that I decided to believe Genesis 1-1? That I decided to believe that the God of the Bible exists? This morning, I want to walk you through the reasons why I said yes. So I'm going to share with you some science, some philosophy, some logic, some scripture that all together led me to say yes. Now, let me be clear right from the beginning. I am not going to prove to you 
that God exists. If I could do that, then this whole Christianity thing would be about proof, not faith. But it's about faith. It's not about proof. All I can do this morning, my goal this morning, is to show you that it is reasonable to believe that God exists. In fact, I'm going to do one better than that. I'm going to try to show you that it is actually, in fact, more reasonable to believe that God does exist than that he doesn't. So that's my goal this morning. I'm going to lay out for you the evidence, the best evidence that I can find. I've studied this stuff a lot. The evidence that led me to say yes to the question. I want to give it to you this morning. I want to share this evidence with you. And and let me give you kind of a, a map of where we're headed as we walk through this evidence. It's going to be like we walk down a funnel. We're going to begin with very broad evidence that just argues that a God exists. Not that the God of the Bible exists necessarily. But then we'll get more particular. We'll move down the funnel and I'll give you evidence that that this God is wise and powerful. Then evidence that this God is good and, and righteous. And finally, we'll end with evidence that this God is the God of the Bible, the God of Genesis 1-1. So that's where we're headed. I'm going to lay out a lot of evidence this morning. We're going to cover a lot of ground. My hope is that if you have not yet answered the question, does God exist, with a yes, my hope is is this morning you'll be persuaded to say yes to that question. For many of you, you've already said yes to that question. So my goal this morning is to equip you so that you can help other people say yes. So I encourage you to write notes, to take notes with this stuff, and to pray for an opportunity to sit down sometime soon with someone who is struggling with the question, does God exist? I want you to be ready to walk them through the evidence and lead them to the answer yes. That's where we're headed. Let's start broad. Evidence that a God exists, exhibit one that I want to give you, is the law of cause and effect. This first exhibit, this first piece of evidence is is a universal law. It governs everything in our universe and it states very simply that every event has a preceding cause. Everything that happens, everything that exists was caused by something. As John McQuarrie says, science proceeds on the assumption that whatever events occur in the world can be accounted for in terms of other events. Let let me illustrate this. Um, About a week ago, I'm walking through my living room at home, and I see a big blue crayon mark across the wall that wasn't there the day before. And so I called my kids in, Luke and Grace, and I asked each of them in turn, did you put this mark on the wall? And both of them answered, no. Well... I didn't do it, and mommy didn't do it, and we hadn't had anyone over at the house since this happened, so what do I know? I know that one of you is lying to me. Why do I know that? Because of the law of cause and effect. The law of cause and effect states that blue crayon marks don't just spontaneously pop onto your wall without a cause. No, they get there because someone made that happen. That's how our universe works. And it's an inescapable law of the universe that every effect has a cause. Nothing does not produce something. We, we see throughout the universe, there are no exceptions to this law of cause and effect. And so let's talk about our universe for a moment. Our universe is one very big effect. It's huge. 
full of an incredible amount of matter and energy in motion. And so we ask ourselves, what caused all of this matter, matter and energy and motion to exist? What is the cause of the universe? Well, most scientists have a quick answer to that. The cause of the universe is the Big Bang. This moment in, in the distant past when all the matter and energy in the universe were compressed into the size of a marble and all of a sudden it exploded. Okay, that, that's a great answer, but it doesn't ultimately answer my question because now I just have all that matter and energy in a marble. What caused that? What caused all the matter and energy in the universe to be compressed into a marble and explode? What's the answer? Well, the Bible has a very reasonable answer to that question. God. God, who exists outside and above and transcendent over the universe, who himself is not subject to things like the law of cause and effect because he created all laws. He is the one that created all of that matter, that created all of that energy. He is the first cause, or what philosophers call the uncaused cause that made everything. It's a very reasonable answer. You have someone outside and above the law of cause and effect who created all of the universe. What is the alternative? What is the answer offered by those who do not believe that God exists? Well, they ultimately must conclude that the cause of the Big Bang was nothing. Nothing. Quentin Smith, an atheist, puts it this way, the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Or Stephen Hawking, very smart guy, probably the greatest physicist of our generation. Here is how he puts it. Spontaneous creation is the reason why the universe exists. It is not necessary to invoke God. I want you to pause for a moment and just think about what he is saying. Very smart guy. I, I'm not in agreement with this particular statement. What Stephen Hawking is saying is that the most reasonable explanation for all that exists, for the universe and everything is it, is spontaneous creation. That just on one day, randomly, by happen chance, spontaneously, the universe popped into existence. Is that possible? Yes, it is. Is it likely? No, it's not. It's about as likely as a blue crayon mark spontaneously popping onto my wall in the living room. We don't see any examples of that ever happening from one end of the universe to the other. And yet that's the only explanation that can be offered if God doesn't exist. Does this prove that God exists? No, it doesn't. But it does prove that it's reasonable, logical, rational to believe that God exists. It, it is, in fact, more reasonable to believe that he does exist than that he doesn't. Because he explains the, the greatest question, what is the cause of the universe? God. Best explanation. So first, what we've looked at, this, this first exhibit, the law of cause and effect, all we've done so far is give evidence that a God exists. A creator exists. We don't know anything about him yet, so let's move on to the second piece of evidence. Second exhibit I have for you is the, the exhibit or the, the evidence of this well-designed universe that we live in. We live in a very well-designed universe, remarkably well-designed world. 
I want you to imagine for a moment that you are walking on the beach. You're walking through the sand of the beach and you stumble upon this, upon a wristwatch, upon a, upon a pocket watch. And it's a really nice one, not one of those cheap ones you might see uh, at, at Walmart. This is a really nice one with gears and springs spinning inside it. Really, really intricate watch. And so let me ask you, what is the most reasonable thing for you to conclude about the origin of this watch? That it just randomly spontaneously by an incredible piece of luck was randomly created by the spontaneous combination of sand and air and water molecules on that beach or that it was created by a really skilled watchmaker who sold it to a klutz who dropped it in the sand (laughs) obviously it's the second the masterful level of design in that watch argues for a designer that is what we call the argument from design This universe, this world we live in is incredibly well-designed. It is masterful. It evidences an incredible amount of order, of beauty, and that argues for the existence of a wise and powerful designer. That's what the argument from design states. Geneticist Francis Collins, he's in the news a lot these days. He was an atheist. He's now a believer. He wrote that when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe... It looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. When scientists look at the universe, what they see is that if you imagine a control room in the universe, it's as if all the dials were set just right so that life could exist on this planet. So you ask yourself, okay, what what are the statistical probabilities that all of those constants could have been set just right by chance to explain life? Well, very, very small. A number that I don't even understand myself, it's virtually zero. Uh, It leads, it's led Michael Turner to this conclusion, an astrophysicist. The precision is as if one could throw a dart across the entire universe and hit a bullseye one millimeter in diameter on the other side. It's like one in 10 to the 40th, if I remember right. Incredibly small chance that just by, by random good luck, everything could line up where you would have life on earth. Or to put it this way, Cambridge astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle, he, he was not a believer, but wrote some pretty amazing stuff. He's actually the guy who coined the term Big, Big Bang, so pretty significant scientist. He tried to add up the probability of a cell, so a living cell coming to exist anywhere in the universe, not just on the planet Earth, and he concluded, if a tornado went through a junkyard creating a functional 747 airplane, that would be child's play by comparison. That led him to conclude the fact that life exists anywhere in the universe can only be explained by the pre-existence of some gigantic intelligence, which if you wish, you may call God. Okay, let's call him God. That's, that's great. <laughs> I like that. So as scientists look at all of the evidence, this incredible order and design, beauty, intricacy within the universe, they conclude the best explanation for all of this incredible design is the existence of a designer. That's a far better answer than that it all happened by random chance. Now, does that prove that God exists? No, we can't prove it. It is possible that it all happened by random chance, but it is far more likely 
that it all came about through the hands of a skilled designer. Or let me put it this way. These are the, the, an illustration given by a philosopher named Alvin Plantiga. Um, let's say that you and I are playing poker, and, and it's my turn to deal. I deal 20 straight times, and every single time I end up with all four aces. What are you going to say to that? You're going to say, wow, Blake, that's really good luck. That's great. No, you're going to say, you're cheating. If this was the Old West, you're going to grab your gun. Now, is it possible that just by random lucky chance, I ended up with all four aces all 20 times? Yes, it is possible. But is it likely? Absolutely not. Not at all. It is far more likely that I cheated, just as this universe is far more likely to be the work of a skilled and masterful designer. That's the argument from design. You look at the beauty, the intricacy, the order in the universe, and you conclude the best, the most reasonable explanation is that someone who is wise and powerful designed this whole thing. That's the argument from design, and you actually see it often in Scripture. The Bible talks a lot about this argument from design. The Bible declares that that creation was made to reveal God's power and wisdom to us. Creation speaks to us. You see that in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Throughout Psalm 19, David uses the present tense. The point is that creation is always doing this. It didn't just do it one time in the past, but every day, every moment of every day and every night, creation is pouring forth speech about God. It is declaring God's wisdom and power, his order, his love of beauty and variety. That leads Paul to say this in Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying here is that creation itself displays God's power, his wisdom, his invisible attributes so clearly, so absolutely clearly that every person who is, who is mature enough to be able to see and understand creation, at least at a basic level, when they stand before God, they will not be allowed to say, God, I did not believe in you because you did not give me enough evidence. God will say, no, you had plenty of evidence. Creation screamed out to you every day that I exist and you chose to ignore it. Creation clearly reveals the wisdom and power of God. Can it prove that he exists? No, but it does prove that it is more rational, more reasonable to believe that he does exist than that he doesn't. So, so far we have gone from a God existing to a powerful and wise God existing. Let's keep going down the funnel now. Let's talk about God, his goodness and his righteousness. That's what we get in the third piece of evidence, the third exhibit, man's moral nature. Now, there's a lot of things that human beings share in common with the animal kingdom. We're made up of cells and organs and DNA, lots of things that we share in common with with animals, but there's some things that set us apart that are unique to humanity, and chief among those is our moral nature. What do we mean by moral nature? We mean that human beings, all of us, all mature human beings of any society, any nation, any place on earth, we like to call certain things right and certain things wrong. 
certain things good and certain things evil. You don't see that in the animal kingdom. There's no right and wrong among animals. There's only that which keeps you alive and that which doesn't. But human beings, somehow, through all cultures, through all times, we like to label things either right or wrong, good or bad. And when we see things that are bad, that are evil, even if they're not done to us, we have this thing within us that cries out for justice, that cries for things to be made right. We have this thing that we call the conscience in us that seems to guide us and lead us to do that which is good and proper and right. And so we're forced to ask ourselves, where did that moral nature come from? That conscience, that sense of right and wrong and that desire for justice, what explains it? Where did it come from? Well, if you answer the question, does God exist, with a no, well, then your only possible answer is evolution. That over tens or hundreds of thousands of years through genetic variation and the pressure of natural selection, somehow the moral nature developed within humanity. That somehow that's where it came from. Because there's no God, no transcendent source of right or wrong. There's just what evolution creates in us. But here's the problem with that answer. When you look at morality, when you look at how morality works, you will see that often our moral nature fights against evolution. What is one of the most basic tenets of evolutionary theory? Survival of the fittest. The one who is fittest survives to pass on his genetic code. And yet so often this thing we call our morality, our moral nature, it fights against survival of the fittest. Think about what are those things that all human beings of all societies call wrong? Well, things like rape. Rape passes on your genetic code. And murder Murder thins out your competitors so you have a better chance of reproducing. And theft, theft increases your resources for your progeny so they have a better chance of surviving. We call those things wrong that actually would have have promulgated survival of the fittest. And and we call right things that are against survival of the fittest. Like what is the value? What is the moral thing that humanity praises above all else? Sacrificing yourself for a stranger. You sacrifice your life for someone in your family. That's good. But you sacrifice your life for a stranger. That's the best thing we have in human society. If you're a soldier and you do that for another soldier, we give you the medal of honor. Why do we do that? Think about it evolutionarily. That person just um, eliminated their ability to pass on their genetic code to the next generation. That is the basic good of evolution. And yet we call that good. Where does that moral nature come from? Well, in in recent years, in recent decades, those who do hold to to God not existing, they have come up with some pretty elaborate explanations that try to tie this, this evolutionary development of the moral nature to evolution of groups rather than individuals. It actually leads groups to do things which are not in a particular individual's best interest. They have elaborate explanations. When you look at them, you conclude, well, that is possible. But is it likely Man, it doesn't seem to be nearly as likely as explaining our morality by looking at a moral creator. That's a much simpler solution. Why is it that human beings have something that no other animal does, this innate sense of right and wrong that spans all societies and all cultures and all times? The easiest explanation is you were made by a moral God, a moral God who pre-programmed you with a sense of right and wrong. That's the explanation that the Bible gives. Paul tells us in Romans 2 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Paul is saying God built a conscience into us. Even if we did not have the Bible, still we would know right and wrong because our moral God put it there within us, a compass to guide us towards the right and away from the wrong. Does that prove that God exists? No. But I think it does argue that it is more reasonable to believe that a moral God created you than than that somehow through random chance and genetic variability, humanity developed a moral conscience. Okay, so what have we done so far? We've laid out three pieces of evidence, three exhibits that I think help us prove that it is reasonable to believe that a powerful, wise, good God exists. In fact, I think these three pieces of evidence, law of cause and effect, well-designed universe, man's moral nature, I think they demonstrate that it is more reasonable, more rational to believe that this God exists than that he doesn't. But so far, we have not said anything unique to Christianity. All three monotheistic faiths, so that would be Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all three would agree with everything that I put on the board. So now we're going to narrow the funnel a little bit more. We're going to talk about evidence that suggests that the God of the Bible is this good, powerful, and wise creator. Now I'm going to have to walk through this part relatively quickly. don't have a whole lot of time, but let me lay out the big three pieces of evidence that led me to conclude that the God of the Bible is the one true God. First, this is piece of evidence number four, exhibit number four, the witness of history. Christianity is what we would call a historical faith. In other words, it is anchored in history. There's a lot of people and events and places that the Bible talks about. And those historical events, they either happened or they didn't happen. If they did not happen, then Christianity is all made up. If they did happen, then that is very strong evidence for Christianity, especially if one particular event happened. And guess what's the most important event you'll find in your Bible? It's the resurrection. That's what your faith is based on, this one moment in history 2,000 years ago when a person rose bodily from the dead. That either did happen or it didn't. And that either supports Christianity or denies it. And so you begin to collect all of the historical evidence. Is the Bible a reliable guide to truth? Is the resurrection, is it a real event? You begin to to gather all of the evidence. And and what I have found in studying the evidence, now clearly I'm biased, but to the best of my ability in studying the evidence, I believe that it is actually easier to believe that the Bible is true than to explain how it could have been made up. Really, if you look at the history, it's it's amazing the amount of historical accuracy, the amount of historical support you will find, not just for the Bible in general, but especially for the truth of the resurrection. You line it all up and it's easier to take it on faith than to try to explain it away as a myth or as something made up. That's contrary to the fact that you go to Barnes & Noble and you will see on the shelves a whole lot of books that try to explain away the history of the Bible. There's a whole lot of books written on that because it's controversial, and controversial books sell, so people keep writing them. It's not because their theories are reasonable. (laughs) The most reasonable explanation of the historical data is that the Bible is reliable and the resurrection is true. Now, I'd like to walk you through all of that historical evidence, but I can't in the time that we have this morning. So I've written a couple articles for you that I'm going to post this afternoon to Facebook and Twitter. I'll share them with you. One is on the reliability of the New Testament. 
that it is an accurate record of history. The second is on the reality of the resurrection, that it is a real historical event that happened. Neither article is real long, four or five pages each. I'll post them, read through them, look over the evidence. If you walk away from that unconvinced, hey, you haven't won the day with me, there's a, a little like work cited at the end that will take you into a much deeper study of both of those subjects. So study the evidence. I guarantee there's an incredible amount of convincing evidence out there from history History, that the Bible's not made up, that it is a reliable guide to history and that the resurrection really happened. So study those articles. I'll have a link for those articles and books at the end of the sermon. Okay, so the witness of history, that's the fourth exhibit we lay out there that goes beyond the other evidence because now we're talking about the unique God of scripture, that he is the one true God. Fifth piece of evidence I lay out before you is the existence of love. How do you explain love? that human beings love one another. And and by love, I'm not talking about erotic or sexual love. That's easy to explain from evolution. I'm talking about true love, sacrificial love, that thing that we value in humanity above all else. How do you explain sacrificial love? Well, I've already said, I don't think evolution has a good answer to that, but I also don't think that either of the other monotheistic religions have a good answer to that. I don't think Islam or Judaism can explain where sacrificial love came from. And here's why. By the definition of sacrificial love, how many persons must you have? At least two. If you have one person alone, is it possible for that one person alone to practice sacrificial love? No, it is not. Well, in both Judaism and Islam, before creation, how many persons were in existence? One person. One person, monopersonal God in both Judaism and Islam. That means that the God of Judaism and Islam did not know love before creation. He had never experienced, he did not know what it was because love is impossible if you are alone. And so he had to create you, he had to create us before he could know what love is and figure it out with us. So he can't be the author or creator of love. So I don't think Islam or Judaism have a good explanation for the existence of sacrificial love, but the Bible does. Because the Bible declares that before creation, for all of eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, has enjoyed infinite love, each member of the Trinity glorifying and praising the other members of the Trinity. That's why we can say God is love, because for all of time, he has never been alone. Always Father, Son, and Spirit infinitely loving one another, one day deciding to share that love with a sentient creature, that's you. God's overflow of love came to you. That's why he created you, so you could enjoy his love forever. The Trinity is the only explanation for why we love one another, why we value this thing called sacrificial love. The Bible talks in great detail about this, especially the Apostle John. John 17, 24, he quotes Jesus saying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What existed before creation? God and love. That statement is only possible in Christianity. Islam and Judaism, there's just God and he's alone. For us, God and love existed for all of time. Father and Son loving one another. Result, 1 John 4, 16 and 19. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And we love because he first loved us. God is love. God has always been love and will always be love because he is triune. 
Father, Son, and Spirit, infinitely always loving one another. Somehow you have to explain the existence of sacrificial love, and the biblical explanation is the only reasonable one. That's the fifth piece of evidence I would give you. Finally, the sixth piece of evidence I would give you for the God of the Bible is the magnificence of grace. According to every other religion, including Islam and Judaism, how do you get right with this creator God? What do you do to be okay with him and him okay with you? Well, you do works. In Judaism, you obey the Old Testament law. In Islam, what do you do? You you practice the five pillars. That's the explanation that every other religion gives, that you are right with this creator God through good works. And and let's admit, that, that explanation makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if, if you want people to do good things, then, then you're going to say the only way for these people to be okay with their God is to do good works. That's a, a very reasonable thing to put in a religion if you are creating that religion. But what is the answer that the Bible gives? The Bible gives the exact opposite answer to how we get right with God. The Bible declares that we get right with God as a gift. That rightness with God is not something you earn. It's not something you work for. It's something that God freely gives you with no strings attached. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Bible declares that, that there is nothing that you have to do to earn God's love and approval. Because God already did everything that is needed. He became one of us. He took on human flesh and he took our sins upon himself and he he took our punishment that we deserved. He paid that price. And then he rose from the dead conquering sin and death for us and now he offers all of the benefits of that as an absolutely free gift with no strings attached. It's yours forever. Do you realize how crazy that is? You're going to take the most valuable, precious thing that has ever existed, eternal life, with the creator God, and you're going to give it away as a free gift, no charge, no strings attached. That is not how you keep people in line, to just give away the most valuable thing there could ever be. If you're going to make up a religion, you would never include that. That's why when I compared these different religions, I concluded Christianity's got to be true because no one's going to make up the Trinity and no one's going to make up grace. That's what absolutely sets apart the Christian faith. There is no human explanation for it. It had to come from God, that God would give you eternal life as a free gift. All you have to do is say, yes, God, I want it. I receive it. I believe that Jesus died so that I could have it. What an amazing, magnificent answer to the problem of sin. And so 16 years ago, on my bunk at Pine Cove, I added up all the evidence. I looked at all six of these primary things that that argued for the existence of not only a God, but the God of the Bible. I walked through the law of cause and effect, and, and the order and beauty of the universe, and man's moral nature, and the witness of history, and the existence of love, and, and the magnificence of grace. I added up all of this evidence as I sat on my bed, and I realized, okay, I need to make a decision. So let me take all of this evidence, and let me make two columns. One where I assume that God does not exist and ask myself, what is life if God does not exist? And the other column where God does exist, what is life if he does exist? Let me take all of this evidence and apply it to my chart because I'm an engineer, guys. So that's, that's how I work. I work in charts. I work in lists. And so I added it all up. If God does not exist, this is what it means, that nothing produced everything. 
God doesn't exist, and I have to believe that spontaneously, by random chance, nothing produced everything, and chaos produced order, and non-life produced life. And I have to choose to live in a universe where there is no meaning. There's no one to define right and wrong, no morality, and there is ultimately no hope, because I'm going to die, and then everyone else is going to die, and humanity is going to be extinct, and there will not even be a memory of me left. And so that is life if God does not exist. What if he does exist? Well, then there is an explanation for all things. There is a cause for why the universe exists. And there is a reason for why it is so orderly and so beautiful and so incredible. There is a reason why I have life. His power created it. There is a reason that I have love. His love designed it. And I I live in a world where there is meaning There is purpose to my life and there is a stable definition of good and bad, right and wrong and there is hope. There is hope because that God has promised me eternal life. Why I added it up and the decision for me was easy. Now it took me a couple hours of intense sweating, a lot of tears, a lot of painful thinking to get to the point where finally I said, God, I cannot explain you but I do not care. I choose to believe that you exist. I got on my knees and I said yes. And, and I, honestly, I, I've never thought about going back on that again. That, that was my moment 16 years ago when I added up the evidence and, and concluded. I can't prove that he exists, but I can easily prove that it's far more reasonable to believe that he does than that he doesn't. So let me ask you, where are you in this question? Does God exist? What's your answer to that question? Is your answer no? You don't believe that he exists. Then my hope for you, my prayer for you this morning is that you would reconsider the evidence. If you're here at church, I take that as really good news. It means you're at least looking, you're at least thinking about it. Look at the evidence with fresh eyes. I'd encourage you to to come talk to me or someone else here afterwards. I would love to talk to you about your objections. I have probably heard them before. I have probably thought them before. So I'd love to wrestle with you as you struggle with that question. Does God exist? Now, what about those of you who have said yes? You've decided the answer to the question is yes. God does exist. The God of the Bible exists and he has offered you salvation, eternal life through faith in Jesus. What I'd like you to do with this information you've received this morning is I'd like you to share it. There's a lot of people out there living without hope. There's a lot of people out there living without an answer to life's most basic questions. Will you share this good news with them? That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A God who loves you so much that he sent his own son to die for your sins and rise from the dead so that you could have eternal life. Walk them through the evidence. Lay it out for them. Help them to to come to a yes. And there may be some of you out there who you're in between. You haven't decided yes, you haven't decided no. You're wrestling. You're where I was 16 years ago. Let me encourage you. I want you to know once and for all, if you come to this church, doubt is not something that freaks us out. We're not going to kick you out if you have doubts. We're not going to leave you to hitchhike home. We love people who are struggling with doubt. Doubt is okay. It's okay to wrestle with the questions. What's not okay is to give up. That's what agnostics do. I don't have a lot of respect for that. You give up. Well, I can't know, so I give up at. No, you have to answer this question. It's the most important question you will ever answer. It shapes and guides the rest of your life. You must reach a decision, so keep wrestling, keep struggling. 
And to that end, let me give you some resources that have helped me on my journey of faith. First of all, just to remind you again, I'll have those articles I'll post this afternoon on reliability of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and on the factuality, the the reality of the resurrection. I'll post them on our Grace Bible Church Facebook page and on my Twitter account. And then let me give you a few books that I have particularly loved in my journey of faith First of all, this won't surprise most of you, Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Amazing book. Really, really useful book. If you got somebody struggling with the existence of God, just hand them the book. It's really good. So Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. For me, Tim Keller, I didn't know anything about him back 16 years ago. Mere Christianity was a book for me. That's the one that took me through this journey of faith. C.S. Lewis is incredibly astute. He will help you and grow you in your faith. And then finally, really practical book by Lee Strobel, Case for a Creator. He's also got Case for Christ. Really good books that walk you through the evidence, particularly historical and scientific evidence for the existence of God and the historicity of Jesus Christ. Okay, wherever you guys are in this question, I encourage you to go deeper. I encourage you to understand why it's reasonable to believe that God exists. At the end of the day, you can't prove it. You have to take it on faith, but it's not blind faith. God doesn't ask you to take a blind leap into the dark. No, he gives you all kinds of evidence, huge amounts of evidence. So study it, learn it, and then share it with other people. Let's pray for God's help to do that. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are not a God who hides from us, We thank you that you are a God who in grace reveals yourself to us clearly every moment of every day. You are screaming to us in creation, in our moral nature. You are screaming to us, God, we pray. Open our eyes. We pray for any person in this room who either has has chosen to believe that you do not exist or they are wrestling with doubt. They just can't seem to land on believing that you exist. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them this morning. I pray that you would open their eyes to see and understand the evidence and I pray that you would lead them to answer the question, yes, to believe that you exist, not because they can prove it, but because it is more reasonable to believe in you than to deny you. I pray, Father, that you would lead them to faith and I pray for all of us who have concluded that you do exist. Father, I pray that we would not be quiet about that incredible evidence that you have left us in creation. I pray that we would share it with other people. I pray that we would sit down with those who are doubting, with those who are struggling and that we would lovingly and graciously clearly present the evidence to them. I pray that we would share our faith and this incredible hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We praise you, God, that you exist. We praise you that you give meaning to our lives. We praise you that you have chosen to love us and that you have given us hope in eternity. Father, everything good in our life is from you. Thank you that you have made us and that you have revealed yourself so clearly to us. For your glory and for the praise of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, guys, next week, we'll pick it up in verse two and take it through the end of Genesis one. See you for Genesis one next week.